Hi, I'm Dr. Robin Roth, but my friends call me the Booby Docs. My popular social media account where I talk about breast cancer and breast health in an educational and fun way. I'm a board-certified radiologist who specializes in breast imaging and image-guided procedures. I'm also a 40-something Ashkenazi Jewish woman with a strong family history of breast cancer and BRCA, so I know a thing or two about breast cancer. And this is my podcast, The Girlfriend's Guide to Breast Cancer, Breast Health, and Beyond. If you or someone you love has been affected by breast cancer, this podcast is for you. Each episode, I sit down with top breast cancer experts, thrivers, providers, and those that love them to bring you the breast information. So get ready to learn, laugh, and let's be breasties. This podcast is not intended for medical advice. Please refer to your doctor with any symptoms or concerns you may be having. Thank you and enjoy the show. Hey breasties. So earlier this week was National Caregiver Day, a day to honor the incredible sacrifices that caregivers have to make for their loved ones. And what a perfect time to share this incredible conversation with my dear friend, Christina Burke. Christina was diagnosed with breast cancer in her 40s off a screening mammogram during the pandemic. While undergoing breast cancer treatment for herself, the unthinkable happened. Her husband, Jim Burke, a beloved, young, and healthy Philadelphia chef, was diagnosed with metastatic lung cancer. The two of them underwent cancer treatment together, and unfortunately, Jim lost his two-year battle with lung cancer at the age of 49. Christina shares their heartbreaking story and offers so much incredible wisdom and insight on being a patient and caregiver and advocate for yourself and others. There is so much to gain from this incredible conversation. This is part one of a two-part conversation with the incredible Christina Burke. I'm so happy to be speaking with you today. <laughs> How was your trip? Um, it was fabulous and exhausting and all the things. Yeah, they're definitely exhausting trips for sure. They're not vacations. No, Disney and Universal Studios is not relaxing, but it's for the kids. How long were you guys in Universal for? Um, too long. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, I think we were there like five days, six oh my nights. God. So we did Animal Kingdom our first day there. And then the next three days we did Universal. So there's three parks. So we did um, Volcano Bay, which I highly recommend when your kids are older because it is fun for the entire family. And it's it was just a great experience. And then um, we did Islands of Adventure and Universal Studios. So that was three days of that plus one day of Disney and then trying to chill at our place. So yeah. How did you did you stay on the Universal property or a Disney or a switch or? Yeah, we were. Um, no, we just stayed at one place. We were at the um, Portofino, which is in Universal. And I highly recommend it. I mean, it's a really nice hotel. Amazing pools, hot tubs, um, st- stuff for the parents, stuff for the kids, like everything is there. Um, it, it was, and you get to take a water taxi to anywhere like Universal Walk, the parks. So it's really fun. I grew up in Florida and I grew up going to Universal Studios, the original though, and Islands of Adventure, but it's totally changed. And I, I can't wait to take my kids there when they're a little older. Right. When they're older, for sure. The, they're, yours are too little right now. So. Too little. Yeah. So thank you so much for being on my podcast. Thank you for having me. I feel like I know you through Instagram. 
<laughs> and I feel very connected to you, but this is the first time actually speaking in person. So Yes, I've heard you, of course, um, on some of your podcasts and through Jenna Ben Scherscher, which is how I was first introduced to you. And then I've been a fan ever since. So then I, I think we met maybe because I was like making some comments on your page. And then you actually took the time to write back. And then, like you said, I think we just followed each other and started connecting organically. Yes, definitely. I think you were actually going through a biopsy originally, like if to take you way back. Um, yes. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I mean, I don't even remember considering so much has gone on since then that my cancer almost took like a serious back burner to things that were just happening in my life. Yes. So I want to talk about it all. So why don't you tell my listeners a little bit about yourself? Sure. Um, my name is Christina Burke. I am born and raised in Philadelphia. I've lived in lots of other places, but I have been back in Philly with my family probably about um, 12 years now. And um, I am a working mom of two. I work for a national um, DMC company, which is a destination management company. It's a mouthful. But what we do when you boil it down is um, we really try to create meaningful events for corporations. Um, and it's a, it's a fun job. It's hectic. But um, I love the company that I work with. It's all almost all women leadership and women run. And so... Uh, that's been a huge shift for me in my professional career, and I absolutely love it. Um, we have two children that live with us here in the city. Um, my son, Daniel, is 13 and in eighth grade. And our daughter, Sadie, um, who we fondly refer to as Sadie Bird Johnson, <laughs> is nine and fourth grade. I love that. So you're busy. You're a busy working mom. Too busy. I, I think it's too busy. I don't. I also, this job for me is new. So there's a huge learning curve and I just, that whole like work-life balance sounds really great, but it's really hard to maintain on a daily basis. So I try not to get upset with the daily and just try to focus on the moments that I can just put away work and have for my family, but it doesn't leave a whole lot of room for mom. Yeah, that's so important that you take care of yourself, especially yep. with everything you've been through and you're going through. So take me back to the beginning, I guess, with your health, your family's health. Sure. So in 2019, um, actually right around our wedding anniversary, I believe it's October 4th, which is our wedding anniversary, I was diagnosed with um, breast cancer. Um, I went for a routine mammogram. Um, like I had been doing for many years, did skip the year before though. And that's my big thing now is like to make sure that women, friends of mine, anybody um, don't skip because early detection is everything. Early detection saves lives. It saved mine. Um, so I know that we, but my biggest, any takeaway from anything we talk about today is you cannot take care of other people if you don't take care of yourself. And sometimes we say self-care means like facials and all these things. No, sometimes it means scheduling a day for your mammogram or your colonoscopy or whatever it is that you have. Couldn't have said it better myself. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> you. You practice what I preach. Yes. So that's number one. So I went for a routine um, 
a routine mammogram. And of course, it came back with suspicious findings. I did not get, I'm not an alarmist. Maybe I am now. I wasn't then. And um, I just thought I have very brent very dense breast tissue. And I know that it was common. Um, and so I got called back and I was surprised that when I called back and they did second, um, you know, imaging and things of that nature, that it was cancer and I needed a biopsy. How old were you at the time of your breast cancer diagnosis? I missed that. Yeah. So 47. 47. Did you have any family history at this point or no? Absolutely no family history and um, not the, was it the genetic, a genetic mutation, genetic, right. right? We did all the genetic testing too. And no, yeah, about 90 to 95% of people don't have a known family history and don't have a known genetic mutation, which is why it's so important, like you said, to go every year and not to assume that everything's okay. Now, I was told that it was um, what DC um, IS, yeah, ductal cancer in situ, so very early stage zero cancer. Exactly. So I was like, wow, this is like the best cancer, precancer that this is the best diagnosis that you could be given. Yeah, if you're going to get breast cancer, you want it at DCIS or early stage breast cancer. I actually wrote that in my notes. If you are going to get it, this is the one that you want, which you don't want, but. Um, so that's what happened. But then what turned out, so I had an, a lumpectomy, it went really well. Um, and then everything went to pathology and then they found more cancer, unfortunately. So instead of being precancerous with just this, I went to stage two because it had spread actually two times. Uh, and I had micrometastasis in other parts of my breast and in my nodes. Okay. So didn't so at that point then did you have to add on chemotherapy or what how did your management change? At that point actually we did a second surgery um 2 weeks after my lumpectomy. I had a node dissection um and then they wanted to also to go into the area to make sure the margins were, you know, further cleaned out. Then after that um I started with radiation and I did about six and a half weeks, seven weeks of radiation, um, which was incredibly difficult. Um, no one really, I don't feel like a lot of people talk about radiation. They talk about chemo. And I feel people in this day and age have a solid understanding of what chemo does to your body and maybe how to eat around it, sleep around it, work around it. Radiation, almost it's like a seems like a secondary thing. And mine was actually very difficult um, for many reasons. Radiation is after you survive, like make it through chemo, it's not that bad. What was hard about it for you? What did you find challenging? Um, it what I mean, I could do it. It, it was the type that I had to do. So I think my you know, you go through something called a simulation. So there's a lot of layers to it, just like there's a lot of layers to any cancer diagnosis or treatment. So one, there's like the physical, and then there's the mental and emotional, right? So trying to speak on all of those levels, you are um, put in a room on a bed with your arms above your head. And this is post-surgery. So it's like very painful. You don't have a ton of mobility. You sometimes have like wires that are like very tiny, tiny little wires that are inserted into you. You are topless, right? With sometimes men in the room um, and they're positioning you and moving your body. They 
put Sharpie all over you for where you're going to receive your tattoos. I had seven. And then because my cancer was um, on the left side and in a certain spot, the radiation beams, they didn't want it to go near my heart. So you do something called deep inhalation breath holds. And that doesn't sound that hard, but I'm telling you, if you are older than me, like I'm saying, maybe much older, I I asked the techs, I, they actually don't do this on a lot of patients because it's difficult. So you are wearing these very large, almost like VR goggles. They put a tube that you're biting down in your mouth and then nose clips on. So you can't see anything that's going on. Your nose, your nostrils are clipped so hard. Um, there's no air going in there. And then if you have a gag reflex, I mean, there's a tube in your mouth. After all the markers and wires and tattoos, then you are put inside, of course, the, you know, the bed takes you back into the machine. Um, and now you're in this thing, but it, it doesn't even matter because your goggles are on. So your arms are behind your head. And then you everybody leaves the room and it's dark and you're basically just hearing people talk to you like, okay, you're going to get your instructions through your goggles. Let's give it a try. And so it doesn't always work on every try and you only have three tries to get it because somebody else needs the bed behind you. And for me, I'm very much like, um, don't hold anyone up, be a good patient, be the best girl and do your job. (laughs) And Um, so I was like committed to getting this and I didn't think about it till after that, like it, how hard it actually was. Sounds traumatic. It is. Then you wait for the directions and then you take in this huge breath and you hold it, but you can't take too big of a breath or else the, it goes too high and they're not able to do the beams. So you have to really commit, you have to learn how to do this breath hold. Once you get to the top of the line, you get a green light. The green light means hold your breath for 30 seconds and it can't go below. Even if you start to like dip in your breath, it can't go below a line or else you have to start the process all over again. The reasoning is they need you to be able to, it's essentially lifting your heart and moving it over to the right so the beam can go to the left. So you're not just, there are other types of radiation where you go in you get partially undressed, you do your thing, you go back, it's 10 minutes, you don't do a thing. Mine was totally dependent upon my breathing, how cool I could keep it, how many times I could do this in a session, which you had to do it three different times. And so, yeah, it was a little (laughs) traumatic. It totally sounds traumatic. And I just want to reiterate for anyone listening, like this was specific to your cancer because it was on the left and we wanted to, you know, they wanted to minimize the cardiac dose. So I hope anyone listening isn't totally scared away because I've heard mixed, you know, experiences with radiation. Exactly. I don't, my mission is definitely never to... Right. Make it scare anyone. But the always our mission, and I think you do this so well, is um, just talk about it because it's education and it's it's on. That's just what we have to do is start talking about it more, bringing it to the forefront. Yeah, we have to know what you could possibly be getting into. And yeah, that sounds really traumatic to be going through all that. And then after that, I needed about seven weeks of um, PT because I had lost so much mobility and I had um, so much swelling. And 
So you had some lymphedema, which is common after the lymph node surgery. Yeah, not so much in my arm, but the breast area and the armpit. And so I did about seven weeks of that and then started doing my own the lymph node um, uh-huh. massaging. They teach you what to do and then you do that at home. But, you know, that's 30 minutes out of your day. Um, yeah. And then I started um, after radiation and after the PT, I started um, oral chemo. So a pill, tamoxifen, which many people are familiar with. But I also, because my cancer is um, fed through estrogen or by my estrogen, I also do hormonal injections every three months. So you're essentially in early menopause, right? Which complicates it. Yeah, it almost like overnight, almost it puts you into medicinal menopause. And I did all of that during COVID. So hard. I mean, yeah, you take your support network out and... Support network is gone. I mean, they want to be there. Nobody could, right? And then because we didn't know as much then, um, you know, people weren't coming over. You didn't, they were worried at first with my radiation and my treatment that my immune system... Um, you know, would be compromised. So we were really in our house, the four of us together 24 seven. And it was, it was, um, yeah, it was a lot. It was hectic. That's another complicated layer to add on top of everything you're going through. Yeah, because then you have two kids, you know, as we many of us did trying to work from home. Um, And then I, I worked as long as I could. But then I we didn't have any work. I'm in the hospitality industry. It was completely shut down. Um, it was like harrowing, I tell you. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. And so you, I want to talk about a few things you mentioned. So the thing that you talked about where they had to go back in, you know, it's upgraded at the time of surgery to invasive, and then you had to go back for a second surgery to re-excise the margins and take the, your lymph nodes out. That's common, unfortunately. And I don't think we talk about that enough, is that you think you're on one trajectory. I did not know it was yeah. common. And um, so, yeah, that's a really cha- that's a big challenge that a lot of cancer patients face. So a year after I was already into treatment, I'm having a home nurse come um, once a month, actually, instead of three months, because during COVID, my injections, the medication that I needed, um, there was a uh, national um, shortage. So they were only giving it to men with... um, Uh, certain types of cancer. And the women had to find, of course, another drug and you couldn't get the doses that you wanted. So I then had to switch from getting monthly or every three months injections, got really complicated over COVID. And I had to then get a different type of medication that was injected subcutaneously into my belly. Um, That wasn't fun either. And I didn't react the same. I didn't have the same reaction. So um, that's another thing is just like every cancer is different. Every patient is different and how you react or um, respond to your medication is different. So it's really good to pay attention to your body under all these circumstances and even take notes and constantly talk to your care team because I, again, it was in that mode of like, be a good girl. It's just another medication. But it really, um, both of my medications changed my tamoxifen as well. And I started having debilitating joint pain. And I'm an active 
person. Um, and I could not even take a walk or go up and down my steps without being in uh, immense burning pain. Um, so that had to change. No, you're right. You have to be your own advocate, especially during your own treatment, because if something's not right, you have to speak up for yourself. And that's very hard, especially for women. Yeah. And we will talk about this once I tell you a little bit more about my husband's diagnosis and what happened. But I do want to make a note that if it's not your thing, like I'm very, I can do a deep dive into anything medically. I actually enjoy it. I think I missed my calling as a nurse. (laughs) Not too late. Everyone says that. I'm like, oh, I'm almost 50. But um, um. You, if you don't want to do it, that is okay. Find a friend or a family member that is willing to do the deep dive and be your advocate and listen and follow up and research because you will only get the best care um, if you are paying attention to your care along with every step of the way. A hundred percent. And don't be afraid to ask for second opinions or ask why, why are we doing it this way? Yes. And for me, I wasn't really great at doing that for myself, but I learned I'm much better at doing it for somebody else. So I always tell any of my girlfriends that do get called back for a suspicious calcification or what have you, or then diagnosed, um, do you need me here? I give them a list. I actually just make like a concierge. Like, that's what I do. I'm like, you should ask if you can record, you know, the calls and, or your meetings and bring someone with you and all the things that we could talk about, but it's hard to do. That's important advice. I'll be your cancer, your cancer concierge. (laughs) I like that for you. It's, (laughs) I like that for you. We'll talk about your Instagram handle later. Yeah. Right. (laughs) All right. So while you're going through this, your husband, Jim gets sick. So tell me about that. So my husband's a chef and um, a culinary director and creator, and he's been working on his, um, you know, our feet. We met when we were 24. We've been doing this in this, our industry since we were young. And he started to get hip pain. And he, he was the type that never drove the car. He was always using his bike to go to and fro to work and, and home. And he thought, well, it's just age, right? Like I have a little pain. That's weird. He did call the doctor because it was per, a persistent pain. This is during COVID. So can I tell you through his entire diagnosis, like until it was serious, we had a very hard time getting seen for any of his pre, uh, any of his symptoms, pre-diagnosis because unless you didn't had a fever, had it lost your sense of smell or taste, there weren't enough doctors in the healthcare system to see people because we all know what happened during COVID. So just note that. So they said, oh, you probably have this. I don't even remember what they called it. And they gave him some stretches. And oddly enough, the stretches worked for a, a little bit. So he kind of let it go because the stretches were working. Then about a few months later, he developed a little bit of a wheeze. No, I don't know if it was a wheeze, but like something with his breathing wasn't right. I do think it was like a little bit of a wheeze and it wasn't normal. And I could hear the differences when he was sleeping. And I said, you have to call a doctor. This does not sound right. And I, we don't think it's COVID obviously, but, and so he had a hard time getting seen because again, none of his symptoms were anything had anything to do with COVID. Long story short, we finally get seen um, because I think I pressed really hard. They um, 
prescribed him, just like his general care doctor prescribed him with a um, inhaler. And my husband is has never been sick. Like my husband never he had been sick in 24 years that we had been together one time. He never got the sniffles, never got a cold, the flu, or allergies. So for them to just give him a inhaler without listening to his chest, I have asthma. So I was like, the alarm went off right away. Absolutely not. I said, you're you go back to them and you tell them you're not taking this inhaler until they scan, they do an x-ray of your chest. Like you could have pneumonia, you, you know. And then it was at that point they scheduled him for an x-ray and he came home about 20 minutes later and we got the call that he had lung cancer. Oh my God. I mean, the shock was beyond. He was um, 48. Non-smoker and they diagnosed him with lung cancer off his chest x-ray. I can't even imagine. Yes. So it was a mutative. Uh, we found out that it was a gene that mutated, like very random, like anyone with a set of lungs could actually get this type of cancer, which is horrifying. What type of what type of cancer was it? So he had um, something called EGFR, deletion 19. And it is when you are, you're a non-smoker and um, it's just a random gene in your body that mutates. And what we found out is that anyone with a set of lungs could possibly get this type of diagnosis. The issue with this type of diagnosis is they don't find it until it is stage four. Wow. I don't even, I've never even heard of that type of lung cancer. So it's very odd for a man his age is very young and mostly it happens a lot in um asian cultures and a lot with women and not too much with um men it's happening more often now but as even as even as far back as like i mean it was 3 years ago it wasn't so um that was shocking and especially because he took the call at the exact same space where i took the call and yeah, but he was at work and we were all home because it was COVID. And so I had, I mean, we just, it was a, it was a mess. Um, we were trying to like hide it from the kids, that shock and just kind of go about our day. But we needed to, I called my cousin to come over. Everyone put masks on. I said, you have to take the kids for a walk. Like it's an emergency. Um, and then what happened, Robin is over the next two weeks his diagnosis for us just kept getting worse. Um, meaning once we were able to be seen by a practitioner, then they let us know that it was in his rib cage, his spine, and his hip, hence the hip pain. And then he did a bronchoscopy. And we also did special testing, um, which I always recommend to patients. It's not always offered depending on what hospital you are. So you must research and make sure you get this type of testing. But once you get it, it helps the doctors target your therapy. And so you're able to get non-invasive therapy to help you with the outcome of your cancer. What was the test called that people should ask for? It's a biomarker test. That's it. So the biomarker test, make, uh, not everybody is offered this depending on the, you know, you could be in a small town or something like that. So 
ask for biomarker tests because this will help you with your treatment. What was his treatment like at this point? It's metastatic. Right. So then we found out, so we found out that he had lung cancer. Then in a few days time, we found out that it had spread to three places. Like I said, his hip, his ribs, and his spine. And then after the bronchoscopy, we found out, unfortunately, that it had spread to his brain as well. It's interesting because you you do, in shock, you do forget a lot. But unfortunately, I mean, I remember exactly where I was each time we heard it was somewhere else. And I'm the one that took the call that then had to relay it. I had to tell my husband that it was in his brain. Um, luckily the children at this point, um, we had sent, it was during the summer, it was in August and we typically take a two week vacation with Jim's family. And so the kids were at the beach with my mother-in-law and all their aunts and uncles. And, um, so they were not around. So it was just the two of us and we were able to better digest and kind of get through the initial shock and of this diagnosis and how we were going to deal with it and then how we would tell the children. So how did you tell the children? Um, So luckily we had some time because they were away, which was great. And then unfortunately, unfortunately, someone had a COVID scare. So they actually couldn't even come home to our house for two weeks. So we had been away from them for quite some time um, and it gave us time to process how we would do that. And how we did it was, first of all, my family is known in our community for being like this super tight knit group. It was always the four of us. We call ourselves Team Burke and um, we have very, very open conversations with our children about um, any topic that is out there in society just don't feel like you need to shelter them from things. I think our philosophy is always like they're humans and they're going to be citizens of this world and you need to give them the information up front and then you will know how much they understand by the questions that they ask and your conversation can go from there. That's how we tackle everything. And we did the same with this. We looked up resources online, um, you know, any kind of cancer websites that we found to be helpful that had resources and books maybe on telling children. But really, the bottom line is you have to know the personalities of your children and the age range and what you think they're ready to hear. So we just, we did that. We sat them down and we did not believe at the time that it was essential for us to tell them how full-blown the cancer was, but just to leave it at Daddy was just diagnosed with lung cancer. We have the best team of doctors. We've we've gotten second opinions. We are going to tackle this in the only way that we know how, which is the four of us are going to stand up for each other and be strong and um, work on this diagnosis every day. And it was so frightening for them because they had already watched mom get poked and prodded so much that it was like, man, I don't know how they really, they're so resilient, but your parents are your caretakers and to have both of them, just like the floor must've just dropped from underneath of them. And then we had individual conversations with them because of their, they're four years apart. And my son had already read books when I was diagnosed about parents having cancer. So his understanding of just cancer, the actual disease was much, um, 
more elevated than my daughter at the time was seven and, and eight. Um, so, yeah. and my husband's treatment started with one simple daily pill. And so my kids, it was great in a way because they did not see daddy go through, mom had two surgeries, mom had radiation every day, mom has a nurse coming to the house. My husband just took a pill. They almost didn't see daddy sick, right? Um, and this pill is known as Tegriso. And it's basically a miracle drug. Um, and it is the only chemotherapy, targeted chemotherapy, that breaks through the blood barrier in the brain. So it, he had, and he didn't even know this because he didn't want to know the details. I was his like managing um, concierge. He had 37 brain tumors. And after being on this um, Tegriso targeted chemotherapy, once a day pill, um, after about six months, he, every one of them was either disappeared or shrunk. And he only had two left and they were not even measurable. That's incredible. So this Tegriso buys time and it, prov it provides better outcomes for patients. So we were able to have dad in our lives for almost two full years because of this. Yeah. And then I became, I was kind of like, I joke about it now, but it's serious. I, I said, I was like, Oprah, I was like, you get a therapist and you get a therapist and you get a therapist. And we did at that moment, we set everybody, I set my husband who had never been in therapy before and both of my children up with um, help. And they, we, the three of us still go to this day. It's so important. You guys have all been through so much. So what was that like um, going through cancer treatment at the same time as your husband and then leaning into the role as a caretaker? Very interesting to uh, some a position I'd never even, you can't even imagine it. I mean, right? Both parents have cancer at the exact same time. And then like during COVID, we're both 40 something. Before this, extremely healthy. Um, and we would oddly enough sometimes have nurses in the house at the same time. And our downstairs, we live in this right in center city. We have a small little, you know, city house and our living, our dining room, I would have to pre-set up for my nurses because there was like lots of lab work and things that had to be done. It looked like a triage center when the two of us were being treated. It was bizarro. Luckily, the kids were back in school at this time. But it looked like I was kind of through it, not to say I'm still not taking my medication every day. Every six months, I either go for, you know, MRIs or my mammograms. And then, like I said, every three months. But mine is more preventative at this point. So I just snapped out of it in a way that my cancer didn't, it didn't take precedence. My husband was stage four and we were I just had to dive in. I needed to know everything. Um, we did get a second opinion, um, and they were fantastic. But we realized we were at the, you know, the best care. Where both of you were being treated at Penn. Both of us are being treated at Penn. Yes, I did my training there. Yeah. <laughs> Yay! I mean, I I love it. it. It's great, and they have the thing about Penn that I'm sure other hospitals do have as well. Is really patients need to look into the resources that they provide outside of just treatment. They can help you um, get on track financially. They can help you with um, therapy. Um, you know, on the emotional level, they can help your family, um, often provide yoga or art, um, any, any type of, you know, they just, 
it, it's out there at Penn a lot. I don't know about some of the other hospitals, but you have to look into these resources because like my husband said, you need an entire community coming together because it's too much to tackle for one or two people. A hundred percent. I am so incredibly grateful to Christina Burke for sharing her and Jim's story. Make sure you tune back in next week for part two of this incredible conversation. We'll reflect on Jim's life and legacy and how she's moved through grief and loss and how her and her young family are doing now a few months after his passing. You won't want to miss it. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed this conversation or learned something new, please go to Apple Podcasts and leave me a five-star review and help spread the word. If you tell me you did, I'll give you a big virtual smoocheroo. And of course, make sure you follow me across all social media platforms at The Booby Docs for more of the breast information. And a huge thank you to my podcast producer, Christian Cuveta, an amazing medical student who also wrote and produced the music for this show. Take it away, Christian.